Parshas Vieira is filled with so many incredible stories, and yet, despite all of the action throughout the Parsha, undoubtedly, the climax comes at the end, which is, of course, the Akedah you read about in the last Aliyah of the Parsha, and it's one of the most incredible stories in the entire Torah, and certainly the story of Parshas Vieira. What's interesting, and what leads to a very significant machlokas in the Mepharshim, is something that could easily be overlooked, and that is the introduction to this incredible and climactic story. It was after these things, Ha'elokim Nisas Avram Hashem tested Avram, V'yomer Elav Avram, V'yomer Hineni. He called out to Avram, who said, Hineni, here I am. This, as we get into the story, leads us into the actual command, the actual test of Kachnas Bincha, and it's so easy to go from one pasuk to the next as the momentum builds in this incredible story. It's easy to overlook the opening four words. It was after these things. And it seems so unnecessary, so trivial, and really so disconnected to the main thrust of the story. Why does the Torah have to tell us that the Akedah took place after what had just happened before it, what had preceded it? Why is that necessary to the story? And isn't it any way obvious? The last thing we had just read about was the agreement that Avram had made with Avimelech, Melech Plishtim. Okay, that's fine. But what does that have to do with the Akedah? And yet the Torah going out of its way to say V'hi achar hadram seems to build a connection. And evidently these words and this phrase is somehow significant to the story. There are three basic positions in the Rishonim that I'd like to highlight. The first is Rashi, and Rashi is working off of uh, comments by Chazal in the Medrash and the Gemara, and Rashi goes in a completely different direction based on the translation that Chazal make of that opening phrase, I originally translated it as, after these things, but Rashi, based on Chazal, translates it as, these words. There were specifically some words which led to the Akedah. What words were that? So Chazal actually have two incredible opinions, both of which are cited by Rashi. The first is that it refers to the words of Satan. The Satan was criticizing Avraham to Hashem, pointing out that when Yitzchak had been born and Avraham made all of his celebration, he never once brought a karban, he never sacrificed anything to Hashem. To which Hashem responds, I have no doubt about Avram's dedication and his loyalty. In fact, if I asked him to sacrifice his own son, he would be willing. And that is what led to the Nisayon of Akedis Alternatively, Rashi suggests, it was after the Dvarim, after the words of Yishmael. According to Chazal, Yishmael was mocking Yitzchak. After all, he said, I had to have a bris at 13. You were just a baby. What a Nisayonite was for me. You didn't really do anything. You were a baby. To which Yitzhak responds, You only had to sacrifice or give up one limb. I'd be willing to give up my whole body. And based on that, comes along the Akedah, and Yitzhak is in fact asked to do so. So Rashi, based on Chazal, take this in a completely different direction. Yes, there was something that triggered the Akedah that's important for us to know, but it has nothing to do with Avimelech and the treaty with Avram. It wasn't things, but words either the words of the Satan or the words of Yishmael. Alternatively, the Or HaChaim says it wasn't connected to just what happened immediately before, but the entire series of events, 
that led to this particular event of the Nisayon, says Archaim, we have to go back to the beginning. Avram and Sarah's long wait for a child, the promise that Yitzhak would come and perpetuate his name, Yitzhak's actual birth and his maturity, all of these come together, says the Orchayim. All the waiting and all the promises, they set the stage, they increase the tension and the drama to create an even greater Nisayon. In other words, says the Orchayim, something that we know from life and from literature, and that is that it's one thing to have an incredible or a tension-filled moment in and of itself, but when you see the context, you see everything that led up to it, that can significantly enhance the experience and the drama of the, exper- of the event. Never says the Archaim, the Torah is telling us to appreciate just how great an Isayon this was. You can't just look at the Nisayon itself, Avram being asked to sacrifice Yitzhak. You have to keep in mind all of the context, everything that had led up to it. Last but not least is perhaps the biggest and most radical Chiddush, and that is of the Rashbam. The Rashbam believes that we have to go mamash kipshuto says Rashbam, we don't look to Chazal for some fancy midrashim about the Satan or Yishmael, things which we can't connect at all to the text. And even the Rachaim was looking too far in the distant future. This introduction of Achra Advaram Ela is connecting this episode with what immediately preceded it, the covenant the Bris that Avra made with Avimelech. And somehow there's a connection. What's the connection? So for this, the Arashbam peeks back a little bit further. And he says that if we go back to the actual agreement between Avram and Avimelech, says Rashbam, Hashem found fault, not with the covenant between Avram and Avimelech per se, but the fact that we read just a few psukim earlier in Perkaf Aleph, Pasach of Gimel, that Avimelech had suggested a long-term bris with Avram's family, not only between Avram and Avimelech, but for future generations. Not just the two of them, but for their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, for all time. And that, apparently, according to Rashbam, Hashem was upset about. V'chara apo shal alzos. Because by making that agreement, you are saying that for all history, including when the Jewish people will inherit the land of Eretz Yisrael, you're giving this non-Jewish nation, the Plishtim, a foothold in the land, something which is against what Hashem wants. And therefore Hashem was upset at Avraham for making this agreement, and therefore he says to him, Now you think your covenants, your agreements are going to protect your long-term security, you're going to protect your children? Go sacrifice your son and see how much your agreements, how much your covenants, your bris, will really save your children. What an unbelievable chiddush, according to the Rashbam, that in some level Avram was to blame, his agreement with Avimelech actually led to Hashem being upset with him and testing him with the Akedah. Vayera elav Hashem belonei Mamrei, Hashem appeared to him, Avraham, in the plains of Mamrei, hu yoshev Pesach ohel, Avraham is sitting at the entrance of his tent, kechom hayom, in the heat of the day. This opening pasuk of our parsha sets the stage for the continuation of the story when the angels appearing in the guise of travelers visit Avraham, he takes care of them, he welcomes them in, he performs the mitzvah Nasas Orchim, eventually they tell him various things, including about the destruction of Sodom, that he'll have a child, etc., and all of the incredible events that the Parsha communicates unfold from there. But this opening postulate, the one that sets the stage, the one that tells us that, as a prelude to all of this, Hashem had appeared before Avraham, it seems to have two extra words, two unnecessary words, 
And those are the last words of the Pasuk. That all of this took place, Kechom Hayom. It took place in the heat of the day. Why is that necessary? What does that add to the story? Why do we need to know exactly what time of day this happened? What the temperature was, that it was very, very hot. How does this relate at all? How does this enhance the substance of the Torah text and the story? So Rashi's answer to this question, and he's very sensitive to it, comes from a famous teaching of Chazal. And that is that it's alluding to the fact that Hashem had made it exceptionally, incredibly, unusually sunny that day. In the words of Chazal, as Rashi quotes, Hashem took the sun out of its sheath. That is to say, metaphorically, there's like a covering over the sun which prevents it usually from being so, so hot and so, so sunny. But on that day, Hashem, so to speak, removed that protective covering, removed that sheath, and it was the sun without any filter. Straight heat, straight power of the sun. And Hashem did all this, Chazal explained, and Rashi brings down, to make it so hot and so sunny that all the various unusual travelers would shudder in place wherever they were that day. No one would be traveling from place to place. Therefore, no one would need Avram's Tachnasas Orchim. And then Hashem did this deliberately so that Avram could get a well-deserved and needed day of rest as he recuperated from his brismila, from his circumcision. Well, if that was the goal of this, we seem to have an obvious problem. The very next Pasuk tells us that Avram looks up and Shlosha Anashim Nitzavim Alav. Three people are coming towards him who he eventually invites in and takes care of. So what happened to Hashem's plan of keeping it so hot and keeping all the visitors away? So of course, this Rashi quotes from Chazal and explains that the plan was working. It was working too well because Hashem saw that with no visitors coming, no travelers, Avram was even in more pain from not being able to do chesed than he was from the physical injury that he had suffered, his recuperation from the Rismila. And therefore, out of his love and compassion for Avraham, Kashbrochu realized that he needed to give Avram an opportunity to do his act of chesed. He needed to give Avram the opportunity to do orchim, and therefore he made a miracle. And angels, Malachim, appeared to Avram in the guise of travelers so that Avram could do what he really had a passion to do, which was chesed, orchim, and take care of what he thought were these three angels. Question is, however, beautiful teaching of Chazal and of Rashi. Question is, even if that's the case, that Hashem realized Avram was in so much pain, couldn't Hashem have solved the problem another way? Couldn't Hashem have just made it not be so sunny? And then naturally, all of a sudden, people would start traveling. Or perhaps Hashem could have made it that despite the sun, some regular human travelers were just so uh, pressured and such desperate need to get from place A to place B, they would have traveled anyway. Why does he, Dafka, have to make angels come in the guise of visitors? Moreover, and this is a specific question asked by Rav Nissen Alpert in his modern-day classic, the Limude Nisan, given the fact that they were angels, and therefore they didn't actually need any of the food or drink that Avram provided them, one could argue that, retroactively, he didn't even really fulfill the mitzvah of Hachnas Zorchim. They may not have had good intentions, but they weren't Orchim. <laughs> they didn't need anything he gave them. They didn't really benefit from anything he did from them. They're angels, after all. You know, why not let Avram actually perform real Hachnas Orchim for real visitors who really were hungry and really hot? So in order to answer these questions, Rav Nissen Alpert explains with a beautiful, a beautiful idea. He says you have to realize Avram is a paradigm of chesed. He's the ish chesed. And this, the story that we first encounter Avram performing chesed with, is the paradigmatic act of chesed. We're going to learn so much about chesed and so much about Avram from this story. And therefore, says Rav Alpert, Kodesh Baruch Hu and the Torah are using this story 
to communicate and to share with us an insight, a key piece of information about the nature of not only Chalasa's Orchim, but specifically, but more generally, all acts of Chesed. Davka, through the fact that the people who benefited in this case, received, I should say, didn't benefit, they were just Malachim, it highlighted the fact that in this case, in Avram's case, who was the real beneficiary? It was Avram. It was the giver. It was not the Malachim. It was not the recipients. And even though this was an extreme and a once-in-history experience of Avram doing chesed for angels, but yet, the point we're supposed to take from this, says Ernest and Alpert, is that even when our recipient is a human, and even when that person really is benefiting from our act of chesed, whether it's tzedakah financially or other acts of a tangible chesed, still, even when they are benefiting, the ultimate and greater beneficiary is the no-sane, is us, those who are doing the chesed, those who are giving to the other person. You might ask, well, what do you mean? How could you say that? Without my chesed, the person would suffer. How could you say that I am a better beneficiary than the person who I helped? And the answer, says from this and Alpert, is that's exactly the point, because that's a mistaken way of viewing it. Harbei shluchim lamakom. Kaddish Baruch can help the person in many other ways. Hashem could help that person without you. It's amazing what you're doing. You're doing what's right. We have to realize that notwithstanding the fact that the recipient is benefiting, he could benefit, she could benefit other ways. Hashem could help that person in other ways. The ultimate recipient from your action, the ultimate benefit from your action, is you. The way you are enhanced, you become a better person, and ultimately be rewarded for that. Just like the angels were not the primary beneficiary, so too says from this snap, and we have to realize that we're also really doing more for ourselves than for someone else when we perform an act of chesed. This shouldn't make us love chesed any less. It should make us appreciate the brilliance and the beauty of chesed. Not only are we helping other people, and we are, but we're ultimately enhancing, improving, and helping ourselves even more. For all that we know about the Akedah, there's one critical aspect of the story about which the Torah text is silent. We read that after Avraham was given the command to sacrifice his son, immediately thereafter, Vayash came Avraham Baboker. He woke up right away, first thing the next day, with alacrity, as Chazal emphasized. He saddled his donkey, he brought Eliezer and Yishmael, and of course Yitzchak Beno, his son Yitzchak with him, he brought the things that would be necessary for the sacrifice and for building the altar, and they began their journey. However, in the immediate Pasuk that comes right afterwards, we hear that we're already three days hence. It's already the third day of the journey. Avram looks up and in the distance he already sees the foot of the mountain, he sees where he needs to go. And then, very quickly, the story commences as the Avram and Yitzchak alone eventually go up the mountain. The sacrifice is attempted to be brought. Avram is about to kill Yitzchak when the Malach famously intercedes and the story ends happily ever after. What is curiously omitted in the Pasuk and in the story of the Torah is what happened on the journey. What happened during those three days? If the Torah didn't want us to know that there was a journey, the Torah didn't have to tell us that it took three days. That itself is curious, by Yom HaShlishi. But it really raises the question, why doesn't the Torah tell us about anything that happened in between? What happened on the journey? What was it like for Avram and Yitzchak? 
I think those are not only curious questions and interesting questions, but legitimate questions. Wouldn't we want to know? And about this, the Torah text is silent. However, to fill that gap, Chazal presents an incredible medrash. It's a teaching that is repeated, at least as far as I'm aware of, in three places. The Yalkut Shimoni in our parsha, the Perkid Rebeliezer, and the particular text that I'd like to study, the Medrash Tanchuma on our parsha. And while there are some nuances of differences, the basic gist of the story is the same. And that is, says the Medrash, one aspect of the story and of the journey which is important for us to know is that the Satan was dead set against letting Avram and Yitzchak succeed at this incredible test. And therefore, says the Medrash, right away, Kidmu Satan Baderech, right at the outset, the Satan approaches Avraham Bidmus Zakain in the guise of an old man. Looked like an old man who happened to come across him on the street. Starts questioning him, where are you going? What are you doing? And when Avram starts to give all sorts of explanations and excuses, and you know, why would he have to tell a random stranger what he was really doing? But each time this old man doesn't accept it and questions him further, eventually the old man, so to speak, lets down his guard, takes off the mask, and admits more or less who he is. I was there, says the Satan. I know where you're really going. I know what Hashem commanded you. And then he goes for the gut punch. He guilts Avraham. How could you, a father? What kind of father would kill a son? What kind of father, after waiting for so many years for a son, would then just kill him? How could you do it? Nevertheless, Avram doesn't listen. And he tries to guilt him and that maybe it's immoral what you're doing and Hashem will call you a murderer despite what he said down commanding you. Nothing moves Avram. He is persistent. He's going to keep on going. So the message continues that afterwards the Satan moved on. He gave up on Avram, but then he confronts Yitzchak. And he appeared to Yitzchak, not as an old man, but as a peer, as a contemporary, as a young man. And there this young man starts asking Yitzchak, where are you going? Yitzhak says, well, you know, my father told me we're going to learn, we're going to daven somewhere. And the Satan asks him more questions and kind of starts stirring things up until finally the Satan again admits more or less who he is or at least confronts him and says, listen, you have to realize the truth. Your father hasn't told you what's really happening. He's going to kill you. Nevertheless, responds Yitzhak, even if you're right, that would only be because Hashem commanded him. And if that's what Hashem commanded, I will not violate Hashem's command and what my father wants me to do. And therefore, he was unsuccessful with Yitzchak as well. The Medrash adds a poignant a side note that after this, Yitzchak went to Avram and told him what happened. He said, is that really true, Dad? Are you really going to kill me? And the Medrash kind of says, you know, well, uh, you know, like parents often do, when they don't want to answer an uncomfortable question. Avram kind of uh, shoot away and latered Yitzchak as it were. Then comes the third stage. Says the Medrash, when he saw that he couldn't uh, convince Avram or Yitzchak, the Satan turned into a physical uh, force that would prevent Avram and Yitzchak from going. He turned into a Nahar Gadol. A big river all of a sudden impeded their journey. But Avram right away went into the water. Then he brought Yishmael and Eliezer with him. He brought Yitzchak, of course. He put him on his shoulders and they went as far as they could go into the water until the water was too far. They couldn't hide. They could not go any further. And Avram lets out a poignant prayer. He screams out to Hashem, You chose me. You've challenged me, and everything you're doing, even with this difficult challenge, everything you're asking me to do, I'm doing. And nevertheless, now I can't do it. Bo nafesh. The water has gotten to where I can't breathe anymore. Either you make something happen and you lower this water, 
or we're going to drown. But there's no way we're going to be able to fulfill your command if you don't help us. At that point, the Medrash concludes, I know you're trying to be Mekadashim Shemayim, you're trying to listen to me. Hashem immediately dried up that river, it was a dry plain, and they could continue going to the top of the mountain where the rest of the story unfolds. What an incredible, incredible Medrash. And it describes here fundamentally three different guises, three different arguments that the Sultan tries to use to prevent Avram and Yitzchak from fulfilling Ratzon Hashem. And I think the lesson here, obviously metaphoric, that Chazal is trying to communicate with us is very, very powerful. That often the Sultan tries to get us to not do what Hashem wants us, to not do what we know is right. But there are different ways and different forms that the Sultan will try to get us off of our game. Sometimes it's an argument of conscience, like the paternal impulse. Sometimes, like he said to Yitzchak, it's not going to be good for you, it's not worth it for you. And sometimes it's physical impediments, or just more objective difficulties. But we have to realize that these are all the Sutton in different forms, and ultimately, like the descendants of Avram and Yitzchak, we have to do what Hashem wants, no matter how hard it is. When the angel comes to Avraham to tell him the good news, that soon he and Sarah will have a baby boy, the Torah immediately tells us, and reminds us really, about Avram and Sarah's age, that they were zekenim, ba'im bayamim, chadalios Sarah orach kenashim, that really they, and especially Sarah, was past their child-bearing years. Then the Torah tells us, in Perak Yudches, Pasuk Yudbet, Titzchak Sarah bekirba lemor, that Sarah laughed to herself. She just couldn't believe it. How is it possible? I am old, my body is withering, my husband is old, there's no way. Immediately thereafter, Hashem tells Avraham and is very upset that Sarah is laughing, that Sarah is doubting what Hashem can do. Is there anything that is beyond Hashem? I'm going to come back to you at the appointed time, and you and Sarah will have a son. And then we have the fascinating postscript to the story, Pasuk Tezvav, that when confronted with this accusation and criticism of her laughter, Sarah denies it. Because she was scared. However, her, the truth comes out. Lo, you did laugh. This entire story and the detail of the back and forth that the Torah describes raises the curiosity, it piques the curiosity of the Chavetz Chaim. And in a piece that is published in the Sefer Chavetz Chaim al Torah, in its commentary to this Pasuk, there is a short selection. And then in the footnotes, they add the same idea, but with greater elaboration, based on a piece that was published by the Chavetz Chaim shortly before his death in 1930. And the Chavetz Chaim basically is bothered by the following question. Why so much detail with this part of the story? Why is it so necessary to have the whole back and forth, to know that Sarah laughed, Hashem being upset, confronting Sarah, her denying it, her being called on her denial... Ask the Chavetz Chaim, what do we need it all for? Is it just to make Sarah look bad? Is it just to sow that Sarah lacked faith? So the Chavetz Chaim, prompted by this question, develops the idea that this is in fact a critical 
section in the Torah, critical psukim. And that, in fact, the story is a metaphor with deep spiritual meaning and a profound message. Sarah and Avram were receiving news of a personal geula, a long-awaited geula. And yet, Sarah could not believe it. She wasn't willing to accept the good news, her good fortune. She lacked faith. She couldn't believe it. The timing made no sense to her. And therefore, she doubted Hashem's promise. Says the Chavetz Chaim, so too, the Jewish people, after all this time in Golis, when the time comes for our national gula, we doubt it. We will doubt it. As he says, So to we question and doubt, we wonder. After all of our years wandering, the Golis, 2,000 years, is it possible that we will have a national rebirth? The Yeshuv Latchias Alumim Kekedem, Mashiach will come, will be redeemed, a full Eretz Yisrael Begula. Really? We doubt it. We will doubt it. We have doubted it. That is the metaphor of Sarah's laughter and her lack of belief. That's the message. This adds the Chavetz Chaim. Just like in the Mitzrayim, so too we know, the Torah tells us, the people could not believe the good news either. They could not believe the Gula was coming because of Kotzeruach and Avodah Kasha. So too, we, burdened and beat down by the Gullus, can't believe, really, the Mashiach is coming. When the time comes, will we believe it? We understand, and the Torah itself tells us why the Jewish people in the time of Mitzrayim didn't believe it. But that wasn't an excuse then, and it won't be excuse in the f- future. In the footnote from the article that the Chavaz Chaim published in 1930, he adds that like Sarah, if we're confronted on our denial, we won't say we denied Mashiach, we'll never admit to that. Rather, we'll try to explain that we were just doubting the timing. But says the Chavaz Chaim, even that's just an excuse. Because Psukim, Tanakh, and in Halacha, tell us that we have to believe Mashiach can come any day. That's part of the belief in Mashiach. For example, he quotes the Gemara. If a person says, I'll be a Nazir on the day the Mashiach comes, every day thereafter, he's a Suffolk Nazir. Because every day Mashiach could come. So that's all part of the lack of faith that the Jewish people had, symbolized by Sarah's lack of faith. And what is the answer? What does Hashem say? Hayipalei me Hashem davar. Is there anything I cannot do? It says the Chavetz Chaim, it's Meduyak. It doesn't say, Hayipalei davarzeh. Is it too much for me to make Sarah have a baby? This thing, is that impossible? No, rather just, Hayipalei Hashem davar. Because it's not just referring to the particular events with Sarah and the ultimate birth of Yitzchak, but rather about anything, including ultimately the Geula, not just for Avram and Sarah, but the Geula for our people as a whole when Mashiach comes. Hayipalei me Hashem davar. Any time, any place, despite the historical circumstances, it doesn't matter. Could Hashem not do it? However, says the Chavetz Chaim, unfortunately, like Sarah, we are mikatne amuna. And even though we claim that we believe, we don't really. It's all just paying lip service. We don't really believe it. And this is the message, says the Chavetz Chaim, of this story. And it's an incredible musr that he's giving us, something we all should take to heart. Do we really believe? Do we think that Mashiach is just a Lubavitch thing, a Chabad thing? 
Or is it something that we really are all required to believe and hope for? And the Chavaz Chaim ends his piece and really suffuses the entire piece with such deep emuna in Mashiach, belief that he was famous for. In Merz Hashem, we should be inspired by the Chavetz Chaim's message and his life to strengthen our belief. Our parsha opens with HaKadosh Baruch Hu visiting Avraham as he recovers from his bris milah. And this seems to be an example of HaKadosh Baruch Hu modeling behavior for us to imitate. In fact, Chazal tell us that this is an example of the halach lebedrachav, mahu mevakar cholim, just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu visited Avraham when he was sick, so too we should learn from that, and we should also visit people who are sick. The mitzvah of Bikor Cholim. Does this suggest that in fact this is a bona fide source, that Bikor Cholim is a mitzvah mid araisa, as learned out from HaKadosh Baruch Hu's behavior here in our parsha? So this is in fact uh, not so simple, and there's actually a very interesting machlokas. Some Rishonim and Mepharshim say that it is clearly a mitzvah daraisa. And others feel just as strongly that it is clearly only a mitzvah v'nerabanan. What is particularly of, note, of noteworthy and interesting is the Rambam's position. He, the Rambam, both in Sefer HaMitzvos as well as in Hilchos Evel and Perak Yedalid, uh, elaborates and explains that there are some mitzvos, including Nicham Avelim, Hachnas Asorchim, and our topic, visiting the sick, Bigacholim, which are, on the one hand, Midrabanan, all of those mitzvos are considered acts of chesed, and you fulfill a mitzvah Midrabanan by doing them, the Ramam could not be clearer. But then the Ramam adds, nevertheless, they fall under the general rubric of Yehavta Lareacha Kamocha. And the problem is obvious. In one breath, the Ramam seems to contradict himself. First he says that these are clearly mitzvos that are only Midrabanan, and the same time he then says right away that they are under the category of Yehavta Lareacha Kamocha, which itself is a mitzvah daraisa. So which one is it? Ramos seems to be trying to have it both ways. Is it Midrabanan or Midaraisa? So a number of explanations are offered, but uh, I'm per- I am partial to a beautiful insight suggested by Rav Aaron Salavechik in a Sefer Od Yosef Yisrael Benichai, a Sefer that Rav Aaron published in memory of a grandson of his who tragically passed away. And there, Rav Aaron suggests as follows. Whether it's Lahach de Bedrachav, imitating Hashem's ways that we mentioned, or the Ramam here introduces V'yahavrecha kamocha, says Rav Aaron Salvechik, both of these at their core are chovos halavavos. They are mitzvos of the heart. The chiyav in both cases is to internalize a certain emotion and to perfect our inner character traits. Halach Tabedrachav tells us to imitate HaKadosh Baruch Hu's ways and be compassionate, merciful, transform our personalities into more kind and giving and compassionate people like HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And V'yahavtarecha Kamocha teaches us that inwardly, in our heart of hearts, we should truly be loving and connecting to all of our fellow Jews. On a Daraisa level, and those are clearly mitzvahs, Daraisa says Ravarn Salvechik, it's a mitzvah shebelev, chovos halavavos. However, says Ravarn Salvechik, then came along the Chachamim and said, True, on a Daraisa level, it's all about the heart. But, Midrabanan, said the Chachamim, Midrabanan, we're adding specific actions which can manifest and develop these feelings. By, etc., those will establish, flourish, develop, enhance those inner emotions. So it emerges as something complex, but quite fascinating, 
according to Rav Aaron Soloveitchik. If a person does a Bikur Cholim, our topic today, then the very act, the physical act of visiting the sick is a mitzvah midrabanon. But to the extent that the person's midos are enhanced, to the extent that the person's love of his fellow Jew is enhanced, that inner enhancement, that inner transformation that takes place is actually a kiyum on a da level. The mitzvah operates on both levels. In, in your heart, if you fulfill that, it's a mitzvah da That's the hafter ha But the very physical action of visiting is merely a mitzvah midrabanon. On a practical level, another interesting discussion that emerges in the Rishonim is what exactly is included in the mitzvah. And according to the tour, it's actually more than meets the eye. The tour suggests two components, and the Beis Yosef adds a third component as well to the mitzvah, all of whom seem to be rooted in a very influential piece, an essay, by the Ramban in his Sefer Torah Sa'adam. The first component, the first aspect of the mitzvah that's mentioned, is that very practically by seeing the chola, you'll become more attentive to his or her needs, and you'll be able to help them. You'll be able to help the chola. Again, especially in the time of Chazal, the time of the Torah, where <laughs> there was no Zoom, there was no WhatsApp web, there was no uh, you know, video calls. Uh, how would you know what the chola needed unless you visited him or her? So by going and seeing that person, you can then help them. That's the first thing, helping the chola. Number two, the Torah also mentions, is that by seeing the chola, you'll hopefully be inspired to daven for that person. And in fact, if you take a look at the Loshan of the Ramban, he seems to be quite clear that the davening for the chole is the ikr of the mitzvah. Perhaps even suggesting, even hinting at the fact that if you visit the sick, you help the person, but you don't daven for the chole, you might not even be yotzer, at least not fulfill the entire mitzvah. The Ramban is very strong that the essence, the most important part of the mitzvah, is the davening for the person. Not just the visiting, but the davening. The Beis Yosef adds a third component. The Loshon is, sheyimtza hachole, Nachas ruach im chavero. In our language, we would say, lift the cholas spirits. The emotional uplift of knowing that someone cared about you enough to visit is an essential component of the mitzvah. In Rav Asher Weiss's newest edition of his Sefer, Minchas Asher Ambarashis, he points out that in the somewhat recently discovered manuscript of the Rush in his commentary on our Parsha, there, the rush also seems to suggest a similar idea of the emotional component, noting that if you visited a chola and the chola was sleeping, doesn't even know you visited, but after you left, finds out that you were there and he feels better, he feels happy that he, you visited him, that that itself may be a fulfillment of the mitzvah. And even though Rav Asher Weiss doesn't, I don't recall, connect this to the Ramban, but it strikes me as yet another example of this third idea that there's the emotional component as well. So we have the practical component of helping, we have the davening, and the third component is just the emotional lifting of the cholas spirits. Now this comes to the fore on a practical shayla, very famously discussed by Moshe Feinstein, can you fulfill the mitzvah of Bikr Cholim over the phone? And the Rambam, uh, excuse me, the Rav Moshe Feinstein suggests that even though it's not ideal, he's not sure if you can fulfill all the aspects over the phone, but he thinks Bidyeved, you would be Yotze. Interestingly, Rav Asher Weiss in that same piece Paskins that he doesn't think that you're Yotze. He thinks it's a mitzvah chesed, but Bikr Cholim requires Bikr, in his opinion, actually visiting.